Ecclesiastes 8. Last time we were together, we considered the responsibility of the governed before God. It's a somewhat difficult sermon as we consider the responsibility that we have to submit ourselves to the government. And I mentioned at the time, just to bear with me, because it's a two-part sermon and there's a lot more to say. And actually, it's a three-part sermon, in a manner of speaking. We're only going to spend two weeks in Ecclesiastes 8, but we're spending three weeks on the topic. And next week, I'm going to put it all together. So again, if this week you leave slightly unsatisfied with everything that I have said thus far, um, hang on, because we will have uh, more to say about it next week. And I think that, that there will be a, a, a greater amount of satisfaction when we get to the end of it. Maybe not always pleasure, uh, as the, this is a hard truth. This is one of those sayings that is difficult for us as believers. But this week is the, is the fun one, because this week we talk about the government's responsibility toward the governed. If we were just to leave it where we left it last week, we'd be on a very slippery slope, right? Submit to government, and you need to obey the rule of them, uh, obey them that have rule over you. History bears record that this is a very slippery slope, right? If you look back in the history of the Western civilization, there was a concept that arose called the divine right of kings. The divine right of kings stated that monarchs are subject to no earthly authority or accountability because they derive their rule from the will of God and not the consent of the governed. By extension, everything that they do must be sanctioned by God. In other words, uh, the divine right of kings says because the king did it, God wanted it to happen, which is not what we're saying when we say that, that, that governments are ordained of God. We're not saying that because a, a, governor, a, a government or a leader does something, God wills it. In fact, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? Oftentimes, uh, the, the majority of time in Scripture, we see in Scripture and in history, we see the, govern, the, the governors, those who are governing, uh, quite dramatically opposed to the will of God. And so this concept, the divine right of kings, uh, the, the idea that we are to submit to government and that government can do no wrong because they are ordained of God is nonsense. That God ordains a ruler does not mean that he sanctions everything that the ruler does. The reality of God's ordained leadership does not give a leader license to rule however he wants, much rather, however, and this is the point, when the Bible talks about uh, uh, government being ordained by God and, and, and our rulers being ordained by God, there is an element, therefore, of submission that comes, but, but really what, what that's saying is not so much that leaders have impunity to do whatever they want, but rather leaders have accountability because they are ordained by God, right? That's what it means. It means leaders have accountability. Luke 12, verse 48, For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. The fact that God has ordained government, just like he's ordained fatherhood, and just like he's ordained the pastorate, the elderhood, demands that those in leadership positions be extra vigilant to the will of the Lord, because they will be held extra accountable. Fathers, you are in an ordained position. Husbands, you are in an ordained position, but that ordained position does not get you off the hook, does it? It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want without question. What it means is that you're doubly accountable to the Lord, right? That's what it means to be a, a husband, that you're accountable not just for you, but for your wife. That's what it means to be a father, that you're accountable for you and your wife and your children. 
That you're accountable to God for how you conduct yourself. As a pastor, I am accountable not just for my wife and my children, but for my flock. Which means I have more accountability. And I will be held accountable. James warns about this in regard to teachers. James chapter 3 verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters. That word there, masters, literally, didaskalos, it means a teacher. Knowing that they shall receive the greater condemnation, the greater judgment. James says, if you're not called to be a pastor, don't be a pastor. Uh, Of anyone in this room, most likely, with perhaps an exception or two, I will stand before God under greater judgment than anyone. Because I have a greater spiritual responsibility. With perhaps uh, the the exception we could debate about, you know, CEOs, but uh, with, with, with accountability, right? Because we are in leadership positions over many people. And of course, I'm speaking towards spiritual things, which means my words will fall under accountability to God. So as we have ordained positions, as God has called us unto whatever positions he's called us unto, this is not a license to do whatever we want because up, oh, I'm, I'm in charge. This is a call unto great accountability and a call unto great accountability because with responsi- with, with responsibility comes accountability. With privilege comes responsibility. So today we consider this other end of the coin. Last week, we we started where Solomon started with with this. That we are to obey the king. That we are to submit ourselves to the authority of those who govern. And this week we're going to consider the government's responsibility. About why governments exist. If they are ordained of God, then what are they ordained to do? Well, the government exists to create an environment within which men can pursue the better way. That's why the title of the message over the last two weeks has been the enabler of the better way. God has ordained government to enable you to seek the better way, to live righteously without evil getting in the way. That's what the government is ordained to do. And that's what we're going to study today. And so we pick up in our context here, Ecclesiastes 8, beginning in verse 6. Reading verses 6 through 8, Solomon says, Because to every purpose there is a time and judgment, therefore the misery of man is great upon him. For he knoweth not that which shall be, for who can tell him when it shall be? There is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death. And there is no discharge that in that war, neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. Remember that we have just been called by Solomon in verses 1 through 5 to keep the king's commandment. He told us in verse 5 that whosoever keepeth the king's commandment shall feel no evil thing and also that a wise man's heart discerns both times and judgment. That the wise man understands that kings are temporary, that nations are temporary. He understands the bigger picture of life and of godliness. The wise man understands that this world is not his home and that there is more at stake in the Concepts and events of submission and of ruling over people than simply temporary earthly happiness. And the wise man understands these things because he knows that to every purpose there is a time and to every purpose there is a judgment. And men live in the throes of despair and in the throes of misery because they don't understand God's bigger plan. They don't understand times 
and judgment. They live consumed with the affairs of men and of nations and of now, and they have no perspective on God's power and God's purposes. And so they're fearful and they're worried and they're miserable because they have no, they, they, they have no consideration of the times and the judgments. But wise men, Solomon says, understand what shall be. They understand judgment is coming. They understand that nations rise and nations fall. They understand that no one knows these times or these seasons that are within God's purposes. They understand that God uses evil men just as he uses good men. They understand that, that, that the epochs of history are in the hand of the Lord. So the wise man doesn't put his hope in governments. The wise man doesn't put his confidence in culture. The wise man places his confidence in God and he leaves the ebb and the flow of nations and of cultures and of times and of seasons to the wisdom and power of Almighty God. He does his part and he leaves the rest to God. Do you see what Solomon is saying here? No man has power over the spirit to retain it, Solomon says. Notice here in our King James translation that they kept the word spirit lowercase. That's a good translation decision. Solomon is not saying that man cannot retain the spirit of God. Rather, Solomon is saying that man does not have power to retain his own spirit. In other words, when it's your time to go, you don't have power not to die. Nobody has power over that. When it's time to die, it's time to die. You have no power, as the next phrase says, over the day of your death. There are many reasons why men might be able to be discharged from war, right? There, there are conscientious objections today. There's, uh, if you get hurt and you get sent home after you got hurt in battle, there are many reasons why you might be discharged from a war. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 20 gives us several circumstances within which those in Israel were discharged from their duty to serve in the army. If they just built a new house and had not yet dedicated it, they were not uh, obligated to go out to war because God says, lest you build the house and someone else live in it before you even have the chance to live in it. If they had uh, just planted a vineyard and had not yet eaten of it, they were discharged from having to serve in, in the army. If they had just betrothed the wife or just married a wife, they were discharged from the army until one year after his marriage, after his his wedding. If he was fearful or faint-hearted even, if he was terrified, he was discharged from military service. But what Solomon is saying here, notice he says there is no just discharge in that war. What war? Death. You might be able to get out of fighting your enemies you might be able to get out of fighting your uh, in, in in some sort of scenario of, of war or in battle but you can't get out of the battle of death everyone's going to die we're all fighting this battle and no one can be discharged from it and it is not only the wise man who realizes this but the wise ruler and the wise nation will realize this as well That this is all temporary, that nations are temporary, that they're ordained by God for a purpose. And the wise ruler, the wise nation will recognize that. The wise government will recognize that. The final phrase of verse 8 gives us a, a, a final perspective here. The wise man understands times and judgments. To this end, he is careful. He's prudent, he's obedient to God and the powers that be. The foolish man doesn't understand these things. And so his misery is great. And this man convinces himself that because death is far from him, 
He's going to persist in wickedness. He's going to do what he wants. He's going to do it his way because he doesn't see the battle. He doesn't see death at the end of it. He doesn't see that things are, are, are in God's hand. He doesn't understand times and seasons. He's living for now. He's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die idea that let's not worry about tomorrow. Let's just live in the now. He doesn't have perspective. And so he lives in ignorance. But notice what Solomon says. His wickedness will not deliver him, though. Those that are given to wickedness, those that are given to ignorance, those that don't see the times and the seasons, those that live for now, those that live for selfishness today, it's not going to deliver them from death. It's not going to deliver them from judgment. It's not going to deliver them from God's purposes just because they've chosen not to, to, to ignore it, not to, not to regard it. So in the context of nations and rulers, we continue in verses 9 and 10. Solomon says this, All this have I seen and applied my heart unto every work that is done under the sun. There is a time when one man ruleth over another to his own hurt. And so I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of the holy, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This is also vanity. Solomon recognizes that there's a time when men rule over other men to their own Hurt When rulers are unjust, when they're tyrannical in nature, wicked uh, in action, wicked in intention, thinking not about the responsibilities of God as the governor, the, the responsibilities God has given him over people, but only rather using and abusing his power for personal gain and the gain of those who he likes. This man rules thinking that he is gaining by his injustice, gaining by his tyranny, But he fails to consider the times and the seasons, justice and judgment. He fails to consider the bigger picture. He doesn't have perspective that not only through his actions is he weakening his own rule, his own power, his own nation, but that death will inevitably come to him. And when it does, he will face the king of kings. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, this title that's given is not just saying that he is a king Greater than other kings, but literally he is the king of kings. He's the king's king. He's the Lord's Lord. He's the one that's in ultimate charge. And if God has ordained leadership, then when a man gets put into the office of presidency, or when the man becomes the prime minister, or when a man becomes the king, or when a man becomes the governor, or the mayor, or the chairman of the PTA, whatever it might be. If he's in an authority position, then God has ordained something for him in it. Which means he's accountable, right? He's accountable to God. And that's the perspective that when a governor does not consider this, he's ruling to his own hurt. He's ruling to his own hurt. There is a greater judge watching, and he will judge. So the concept of divine ordination of government, far from giving government and rulers license to terrorize their own people, it ought to work in them a godly terror, which ought to compel them to rule carefully, deliberately, and justly. Because there's coming a day when they will stand before God and they won't just answer for themselves and for their their spouse and for their children. They will answer for the governed. So Solomon says that wicked rulers have come and they've gone. Notice what he says about them. So I've saw, I saw the wicked buried who have come and gone from the place of the holy and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. The city 
of those who have ruled wickedly forget them. Their memory becomes little more than a mud stain on the carpet of history. But more than that, the damage they do over society and rule is considerable. We see this in verse 11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men men is fully set in them to do evil. This is the legacy of the wicked and unjust ruler. He breaches justice, his unwillingness to enforce basic cultural decency and moral culture degrades and emboldens evil. The evil that exists in a nation is not simply an outworking of sinful hearts. It is the outworking of sinful hearts who have been emboldened by the passivity of its government. When justice against evil is executed swiftly, evil flees to the darkest corners of that society. Like cockroaches, they scatter and hide when light shines. They become fearful of the consequences, and it doesn't necessarily stop the evil, but it causes the evil to hide from society, and society is able to function without its heavy influence. But when an unjust ruler leads the nation, when unjust laws are on the books, when unjust things are happening, the wicked are emboldened. They come out from the cracks and the dark corners, they crawl out from the swamps and begin boldly spreading their moral filth throughout society and culture. And this is deeply troubling for the righteous when they see the evil, the vilest people in the nation protected and coddled and even held up as heroes. And we're just in such a place today in the United States. The last decade, the most evil and vile elements of our society have been emboldened to operate. They have been exalted as heroes, knowing that there is no righteousness or justice enforced in the land. By God's grace, that can change with each change of administration. And we've seen some changes in the last six months already, pretty dramatic changes, in fact. But this should not surprise us because Solomon told us 3,000 years ago that this is the result of unjust rulership. That when evil is not quickly judged against, when sentences against evil work is not executed speedily, men set their hearts to do evil. Well, if I'm going to get away with it, then I'm going to do it. And evil is allowed to prevail, and evil is allowed to continue. Well, what does this mean for the righteous? In times like these, what does it mean for the righteous? We read on in verses 12 and 13. Though a sinner do do evil an hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. But it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. You see what we might perceive as a contradiction here, though evil, though a sinner do evil a hundred times and his days be prolonged. Well, if the days of a sinner are being prolonged, what are we talking about toward the end of this? Verse 13, neither shall he prolong his days. Well, let's talk about it. So evil, when it is allowed to prevail, though a sinner do evil a hundred times, though a sinner is doing evil over and over and over again, though he live to be old, though he live to be an old man, though he live to be 80, 90, 100 years old, and he sins throughout all of his days, and he's sinning again and again and again, Solomon says, but here's what I know, there's coming a day. There's coming a day when 
his days will be over. His days will not be prolonged indefinitely. That's what verse 13 is saying. His days shall not be prolonged indefinitely. And at the end of those days, what is his end? It shall be well with the righteous, them that fear God on that day. For on that day they will stand before the Lord. And as uh, Romans chapter 12, we just studied it in Sunday school this morning. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. There's coming a day of judgment for them. And for the righteous there will be joy. There will be peace. There will be vindication. That man's days shall not be prolonged on the other side of eternity, that wicked man. His days will be as a shadow. His memory will fade from eternity because he does not fear God. Where government fails to execute judgment speedily, know this, brethren, God will not. Judgment will be executed. There's coming a day when all will be made just. And on that day, this is what Solomon knows, it will be well with the righteous who fear God. It shall not be well with the wicked and their days will not be prolonged in that day because they fear not God. And this brings us to the end of the third division of Ecclesiastes as I've broken it up. If you have an outline, I've broken Ecclesiastes up into four divisions. Uh, The end of chapter eight is the end of that third division where Solomon says this in verses 14 to 17. This is kind of his invocation at the end of this division. He says, there is a vanity which is done upon the earth that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the works of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Then I commended mirth because man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry for that shall abide with him of his labor all the days of his life, which God hath given him under the sun. When I applied mine heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done upon the earth, for also there is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes. Then I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, further, though a wise man think to know it, Yet shall he not be able to find it. Uh, I'm just going to summarize this. It's very similar to what we've talked about in each of the, the ending chunks throughout Ecclesiastes. Solomon first considers the sad reality that what ought to be done to the wicked, namely punishment and sorrow, is often realized only upon the just. Right? In this life it is often the just. Those that play by the rules, that find themselves under the hand of tyranny and corruption and evil. Where the evil get away. And the just suffer. Likewise, that which ought to happen to the righteous, namely protection and reward, is often realized to the wicked. The wicked are the ones being protected and being rewarded for their wickedness. And this is a failing of the God-ordained purpose of government to protect the righteous and punish the wicked. And this is a failing of sinful men who persist in ungodliness and injustice. So Solomon says that he commended mirth. When he thought about this, he says, I commended mirth. I rejoiced in amusement and in celebration, in that which is just fun. I rejoiced in just going out and having a good time, effectively. Because even in a world of injustice, there are pleasures in this life which abide with the man under the sun. There's family. There's friends. There's amusement to be had. And as long as a man lives, there will be those things. So it is. 
as we've said all along, that enjoyment in this life is a gift from God. It's not a bad thing. And not something that is to be rejected or scorned. As long as it's virtuous. But these things are only good under the sun, folks. Only good for as long as we live out these temporary days. The ability for mirth and enjoyment and family and friends and, and, and these things to, to help kind of soften the edges of the evil that is in this world. The ability of an amusement and enjoyment and friends and family and love and, and, and such to soften the edges of injustice. It only goes as long as we're on this earth. And so in the midst of Solomon's thoughts, he also remembers that all of man's attempts to understand justice and, in judge, and, and injustice, to try to comprehend why it is in every generation that the just seem to suffer and the unjust seem to profer, prosper to the extent where a man would seek to understand these things and he could pursue them so much so that he wouldn't eat, he wouldn't sleep, and he still wouldn't understand them. That's what Solomon says. And in it all, through all, all of his thinking, he probably spent many sleepless and, uh, nights and many, uh, uh, he missed many meals. That's probably why he wrote what he wrote, trying to comprehend injustice and trying to comprehend evil, only for him to come to the conclusion that there are some things about God's way that are simply beyond us in this lifetime. That we may never have a complete and satisfactory answer for why God has allowed certain things and disallowed others. We can guess, we can speculate, but to seek it out, to chase after it, is like to chase the wind. A man may seek it, but he won't find it. And the wise man knows this, so he leaves these things in the hands of God. He fears God, he trusts that God will fill in the gaps of his understanding that is lacking, he trusts that vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And he lives out his days. So ends chapter 8, so ends the third section of the book. We'll pick up there, of course, still next week as we uh, come to the, the ultimate conclusion over chapters 9 through 13. But uh, for today, we're going to apply. We've considered Solomon's teaching about government, and now we're going to take that teaching and we're, we're going to bring it closer to home. And the first point I'd like us to consider in our application today is this. Wicked rulers weaken and ultimately destroy the nations and cultures over which they rule. We need to understand this, that God has ordained government, and He has ordained government to operate in a certain way. And while man has the opportunity to operate outside of that ordained way, when government does operate outside of that, that ordained way, they do so to the harm of themselves, they do so to the harm of their culture, and to their nation. We'll read a few verses, and then let's talk about it together. Proverbs 11, verses 10 and 11. When it goeth well with the righteous, excuse me, went the wrong way there. When it goeth well with the righteous, the city rejoiceth. And when the wicked perish, there is shouting. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. There's an endless debate today about the source of society's decay. As we look at a society, we are living in a society and a culture that is decaying before our eyes. It's crumbling before our eyes. And as we do so, there's all sorts of theories as to why that might be. Lack of education and racism and ideological divides and poverty and all of these things that are thrown out there. But what we know scripturally is this. At the very least, there's that, that, that national weakness, that, that societal weakness, that cultural weakness stems from evil, sin. 
weak nations and cultures and their decay stems from the government abrogating its divine duty that they have been given to punish evil and to reward good. Cities are overthrown by the mouth of the wicked, by the leadership of the wicked, by the failure of the wicked to lead properly. Look at the places where rioters have been allowed to riot, have been given the the license to riot. Look at what's happened in Baltimore. Look at what's happened in Chicago. Look at what's happening in Berkeley. Where wickedness is allowed to prevail, cultures, cities degrade. Society degrades. Where evil prevails, the, the, the culture and the city and its power and its strength is torn down. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. It is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him that speaketh right. Thrones are established by righteousness, folks. Now, in the United States, we don't have a throne. We have a presidency, which rotates every four to eight years. We have Congress, which is chosen by the the individual states. The closest thing we have to a king is probably, as we mentioned last week, what we might call our constitution. But as far as actual physical leaders go, it's probably our judiciary as they're appointed. And then uh, the Supreme Court, at least, serves as long as they want. But from administration to administration and from generation to generation, history will judge the leaders of the United States in the same way history judges every other leader. By the strength of the nation and the culture. And what is the strength of any nation and culture? It is moral decency and the rule of law. If you study history, and and, and secularists will say this as well. The rule of law defines the strength of nations. The rule of law, which stems from moral decency, defines the strength of cultures. When a people are no longer led into righteousness of objectivity, uh, objective morality by its leaders, you can know that that nation and culture is on the brink of obscurity. And let us just take a moment to make something clear. We'll talk about this more uh, in a little bit. I'm not saying that we need to establish a theocracy. We're not saying that theocracies need to be, that's where God rules, where, where everybody rule, where everybody lives according to the Bible, uh, similar to what we saw in Old Testament Israel. We're not talking about a church state system where the church has its thumb on the state so that the state is afraid of the church and rules by the dictates of the church. We're not talking about compelling people to go to church or to give to God or anything of the sort. We're talking about rulers and governments identifying the fact that they are ordained in their position by God and identifying objective morality under which God has created us and leading the country into objective moral principles and justice. We're talking about the rule of law. That's what we're talking about. A lot of people will argue, well, churches, all they want to do is create a theocracy. They want to create a system of government where everybody lives by the morality of the Bible. Well, in one sense, yes, that the morality of the Bible is is presenting the morality of creation. That God has created mankind to operate under a moral code that is written upon man's hearts. And to that degree, yes, we ought to, and government ought to enforce that. But what, 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 what this church is not saying, what the Bible is not saying, what we're not trying to say today is that people need to be compelled to go to church and to worship the true and living God and to live under the dictates, the higher dictates 
of Christian living. That's not the government's responsibility. The government's responsibility is to create an atmosphere conducive to allow us to do that, though, if we would so choose. They're the enablers of the better way. We're talking about nations with just laws enforced by just courts. Laws against the abrogation of personal rights, private property. Laws that protect and reward decency, morality, family. Because these are the bedrocks of a healthy culture and society. It's the way God has created us. This is not governing legislating, uh, governing Christianity or legislating Christianity. This is government identifying that God has designed society and culture to function in a particular way, identifying that way for the best good of themselves and their people and enforcing that way. We're talking about nations with effective peace officers who serve in integrity and honesty. And when this is the case, when righteousness rooted in objective morality is established, Wickedness flees to the shadows. Again, it doesn't go away. It will never go away until Jesus comes and wipes it off the earth. But when light shines, those who love darkness flee to the places where darkness can be found. And so this is what we can know. When darkness operates in the open, it is because a nation has given up the rule of law and has allowed darkness to operate in the open at the expense of the good of the people who would seek to be protected from that darkness. Proverbs 29, 2 and 4. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Verse 4, the king, by judgment, establisheth the land. But he that receiveth gifts overthroweth it. Righteous rulers, rulers establish strong nations who, through rule of law, protect their people's ability to live in safety and in peace. This is God's ordained role for government. When the wicked rule, however, the people mourn. The people mourn because justice fails. The people mourn because wickedness thrives. The people mourn because they're not protected. They're not safe. So they're not free. What establishes a land? What is the link that binds every free and prosperous people that history has ever known? It's not that they've all been Christian nations. It's not that they've all had theocratic roots. It's that there has been rule of law. There has been a leadership that has identified some degree of law, of a a way in which man is designed to operate, of a moral code, and has set that code in place and enforced it. If we want to talk about Hammurabi's law, Hammurabi's code, if we want to talk about the Ten Commandments, if we want to talk about the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire, what established them in their strength and what gave them sound culture and allowed people in that culture to operate in a way in which they could thrive, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, it all came down to rule of law, identifying objective moral standards and enforcing them. That is the government's job. To protect its people. To protect its people from without and from within. To make an environment conducive for people to thrive. An environment of objective morality. Of rule of law. When do lands and nations and cultures crumble? When corruption and injustice thrive. So number one. Wicked rulers weaken and ultimately destroy the nations and cultures over which they rule. Number two. Rulers are divinely responsible to create a culture, 
uh, cultural climate conducive to morality. This is the ruler's job. We have said already we're not talking about setting up a theocracy. God will do that one day. He has not given mankind the privilege or the mandate to do so. And he certainly hasn't given this mandate to the church. But the role of government in scripture is very clear. Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 3. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. That's our job. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For, here it is, for rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Will you not fear the power? Will you not submit to the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Now, if you didn't hear part one of this sermon, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it online. In part one, we made very clear that these verses are not teaching us that when government fails at its mandate, then you are not under divine responsibility to obey your mandate. And we'll talk about this even more next week. Uh, this is foreign to scripture. However, the role of government in society is laid out here. That government is ordained and mandated to be a terror to evil. To identify what evil is and to stop it. To execute judgment speedily. To protect by force its citizens from outside threat of warmongering nations who would seek to overthrow its nation and culture. And to protect its its, uh, citizens from inside threats of wicked people who would seek to deprive its citizens of life and liberty and property. We see a similar reality in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And we studied this, right? We recognized that that command to submit came at the end of all of the, the, the statements by Peter of bad people, right? These are bad people. These are people that are harming you. These are people that are hurting you. So it's not a submit yourself to government as long as government's being kind to you. We established that last week. But then as we get past the submit part, verse 14 says, or uh, whether it be unto king, as unto supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him, that's God, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. That's government's job. Every person that takes the oath of office in this country and in every country around the world, when they step into that oath of office before God, they are taking up the mantle of punishing evil and rewarding good. And whether or not they do it, God will hold them accountable to it one day. This you can know. That it will be well with the righteous and it will not be well with them that do not fear God. If judgment for crime was swift and final, then society and culture would be able to thrive. Crime thrives because of injustice. When justice and rule of law prevail, evildoers are punished and righteousness is able to flourish. The concept has been personified in Western culture at the beginning of the 16th century with the Lady Justice statue. Found in Switzerland, Brazil, Italy, Germany, Canada, London, Japan, Czech Republic, Iran, Australia, Hungary, many places in the United States, this statue is a symbol of what what a civilized, functional society is supposed to, government is supposed to do. She holds in one hand a scale just weights, weighing justice by a scale, by the scale of morality. There has to be a standard if you're going to weigh it, right? You have to have a standard on one side to weigh it against. That's the standard of objective morality. 
On the other hand, she holds a sword. She is ready to punish those who offend the scales of justice, who breach objective morality, the standard. Finally, she's blindfolded. And that blindfold represents her judgment based upon nothing but those scales. Not her feelings, not her heart, not her perception, but those scales alone. That's justice. That's rule of law. That's what God asks of government. To identify objective morality. What's the problem today? There's no more objective morality. Judges are just shooting at a moving target or creating new targets all their own. Government is creating new targets of morality. They're saying, we're going to rule for these next four to eight years by my morality. And then we get a new one. Now it's by my morality. And then we get a new president, a new, new Congress, a new, new judiciary. Now it's by my morality. We are being ruled by the feelings of people rather than by objective truth. And societies that are ruled not by justice and the rule of law crumble. Cultures crumble. Because government has abrogated its role. They have given up their responsibility before God. Cultures have for generations recognized the essential nature of rule of law to the strength of nations. And this is the duty of government. It is not government's job to provide food for us or housing for us, or clothing for us, or health care for us, or utilities for us, or communication for us, or regulations for us, or education for us. In fact, by taking those responsibilities, oftentimes what's happening is they are stripping those responsibilities from God-ordained institutions, family, church, or even simply himself. The one mandate which God has given to government is the mandate of punishing evil and rewarding good. That's, that's the mandate. Protecting their people to give their people the opportunity and the privilege of living according to the dictates of their conscience. Protect your people and then get out of their way so that they can live. Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 20, verse 8. A king that sitteth in the throne of judgment scattereth away all evil with his eyes. Then verse 26, a wise king scattereth the wicked and bringeth the wheel over them. That's the grindstone. Proverbs 28 verse 12, when righteous men do, uh, do rejoice, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, a man is hidden. Verse 28, when the wicked rise, men hide themselves. But when they perish, the righteous increase. Number one, wicked rulers weaken and ultimately destroy the nations and cultures over which they rule. Number two, rulers are divinely responsible to create a cultural climate conducive to morality. Number three, rulers will be judged by a righteous God. This is essential to make clear. It doesn't matter whether a ruler believes in God. It doesn't matter whether a ruler regards God. He will be judged by God for his rule. The believer rests in the reality that when our government leaders at every level stand before God one day, a part of their accountability and judgment will be focused upon the righteousness of their rule. Did they protect their people from evil? Did they execute judgment swiftly? Did they uphold righteousness, universal morality? Did they rule in justice and integrity? And to this end, you can know that those who fail and rule in evil will one day meet their maker and justice will be served. Remember how Solomon describes the wicked in verse 9? The wicked ruler in Ecclesiastes 8 verse 9. There's a time when one man ruleth over another 
to his own hurt. Not just to the hurt of the person over which he's ruling, but to his own hurt. Because though a man might live a hundred years and though his reign might be very long, when he stands before Almighty God, the King of Kings, he will answer for how he ruled according to God's standard. And you can rest upon that. And you can be comforted by that in the day of injustice. Now let's bring the point closer to home. We've mentioned this authority point, and let me just mention this in passing, that this point does apply to families and churches as well. In other words, whether or not you regard God's ordained purpose for you as a father or as a husband or as a pastor, that doesn't change the fact that God has ordained the purpose and that we will answer for it one day. Wicked leaders weaken families. Wicked leaders weaken churches. Those who are unwilling to recognize God's morality, God's expectations, and to follow them, allow wickedness to flourish. Parents, if you don't chasten your children, their hearts will have the opportunity to set themselves unto evil. If you do not execute judgment swiftly. Proverbs 13, verse 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. That means in due season. That means at a, at a proper season. It doesn't mean all the time. That's not what betimes mean. Betimes means in proper season. You chasten him when he needs it, not when he doesn't. Proverbs 23, 13. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Now, obviously, the word beat here in Proverbs 23 brings up horrible connotations in today's society and one which we would repudiate, right? We don't, we don't um, condone in any way, shape, or form uh, a physical abuse of a child. The Bible doesn't condone that either. No parent should ever beat their child inflicting wounds on them in anger. But that's not what the rod of correction is, is it? The rod of correction is the process of breaking a child's will while preserving a child's spirit through physical correction. It goes no farther than is necessary to compel submission. It is done objectively, never in anger and frustration. It is carried out with clarity of mind, not in rage. It is done to bring about repentance, not to make a parent feel better or as a means of exhibiting your frustration on your child. If you ever physically discipline your child in anger, you cannot say that you're doing it God's way because that is not God's way. If you ever physically discipline your child beyond the purpose of causing them to submit their will, you cannot say that you're doing it God's way because that is not God's way. But if you are failing to discipline your child into submitting their will, then you are not doing it God's way because that is God's way. If judgment is not executed speedily, if you're not doing uh, not doing what God has asked you to do by disciplining your children, well then, their hearts may just set themselves to do evil. And to the same end, parent, you're accountable to God. Just as the government is accountable to God. And to the same end, so am I as your pastor. I'm accountable to God for the words that I say. I'm accountable to God for how I lead this body. In the same way, a father is accountable for his children, a husband is accountable for his wife, and a government leader is accountable for his people. We already talked about James 3.1. I will stand before God and answer for church discipline, for church order, for church leadership. One final point as we close. Man can find lasting satisfaction. We live in an age where due to the welfare state and the government being what it is today, government has become, for many people, their God. 
When we when people have needs, they don't run to God, they run to government. When they have wants, they don't run to God, they run to government. They see the government as the source of all everything. Health and protection and things and It is for this reason that so many people cannot abide when anyone disagrees with them on politics. Because when you attack their thoughts on government, what you're attacking is their God. And their source of contentment and provision. And as our country spirals deeper and deeper into the demand that government become our provider and our God, it will only get worse. Because as the state is asked to take on this power, the state will assume the privileges of power with it. The state must become God, the source of satisfaction. And indeed it is for many in our culture today. But it's a straw man. It's a fallacy. It's fake. It cannot be. It never will be so. The government does not have the privilege or the power to satisfy the needs of man. The government cannot be what society has asked it to become today because the role that they have asked it to become, which is the provider and sustainer of all things, has already been taken by an almighty God. And he's not letting it go. The government is not equipped, nor does it have the right. Satisfaction is only found when we identify God's design and live within its boundaries. But even more focused upon what we learn today, if we are relying upon government to be our source of justice and our righteousness unto complete satisfaction, if a injustice done in our government, whether it be in, in the region of politics or it be in the region, uh, region of judgment through the judiciary or whatever it might be, if you look at the injustice today and it causes you to lose all hope, then your hope is in the wrong place. There will be injustice. There will be unrighteousness. It's not the way God designed it, but it's what man does to God's design. But there is coming a day when justice will be established, when, when, when judgment will be made complete, where rule of law will be indelibly placed upon this world. And if our satisfaction rests upon that, the day our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, comes and makes all things new, well, then we stand on solid ground. The promises have been made. We simply wait for the curtain to fall. There's coming a day when Jesus Christ will rule and reign with absolute justice. Nations rise, nations fall, cultures and societies come and go, but those who are citizens of a heavenly country are promised the lasting satisfaction of a king who will rule over this world with a rod of iron, who will avenge his own, and who will lead us into the peace and prosperity that he has promised us. And so we've looked at both sides of this coin. There's the government side. And unless you go into government, which is a privilege that we have in this country if you choose to go that route, that's a side that we don't control. We know what God has ordained. We know what God expects. Our job, however, the Bible says, is to submit. We teach that parents and children each have a responsibility in the home. 
that children will be judged not based upon whether or not their parents are worth obeying, but whether they are obeyed. Parents will be judged not based upon whether they their children choose the right, but whether or not they are taught the right. We teach that husbands and wives have a responsibility in the marriage, that wives will be judged not based upon whether or not their husbands love them and are worth submitting unto, but whether or not they did submit, that husbands will be judged by God, not whether upon uh, whether their wives chose to submit to them, but whether they love their wife as God called them to love. We teach employees and employers that they each have a responsibility in the workplace, that employees will be judged not based upon whether or not their employers are worth working for, but whether or not they submitted themselves to their employer. That employee, uh, employers will be judged not based upon whether their employees did all the work that they were told to do, but whether or not they were wise and fair and godly employers. And the question becomes, if the relationship between husband and wife is a 100-100, and you're to uphold your end regardless of whether they uphold theirs, because God has ordained it. And if it's the same with parents... And if it's the same with children, and if it's the same with employees, and it's the same with employers, well then, how is it any different with government and citizen? If God has ordained it, that we submit and that government and that government protects, well, how is it any different that we submit regardless of whether government upholds its end, and government protects regardless of whether the citizens uphold their end? So in other words, every time you see a police officer protecting those that are protesting police officers, hating police officers. That's a government doing its job regardless of whether or not the citizens are going to do theirs, right? And we have the privilege of doing the same. We do our part because it's not for the government that we do it. It's not for our... Well, it's not for my wife that I do it. It's not for our parents that we do it. It's not for our children that we do it. It's not for our employees that we do it or our employers. It's for God. For the Lord's sake. And as I mentioned last week, I'll mention again in closing. Where this all falls out with you, that's the spirit leading in your life. How this all plays out in a society and in a culture and in a mindset that struggles with, with these concepts is, is up to you. And God. But, but know this, that when you stand before God, you, you're going to have to answer for what He wants of you, Right? Not for how you twisted everything to to work in your your ideas into his, but how he wants you to be. So make sure that when you're deciding, where does God want me in submission to government, knowing what government's role is of me, uh, 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 toward us, and our role is toward them, where does God want me in this? Just make sure that on the day you stand before God, you have confidence that you'll stand before him and you'll hear those words, well done. Because no matter how, how many ways we can justify our actions biblically and explain away our, our thoughts biblically, when we stand before God, there's one right and there's one wrong. And we want to find the right. And I, I confess that there's a lot of gray area here. Not, not in God's eyes. He knows. He's, it's all black and white to Him. But there's a lot of gray in our, in our consideration of this. What do we do with a government like Nazi Germany? What do we do with communism and the millions that they've killed over the past century? These are things that we have to work through in our own hearts and our own, our own way. There are answers if with God and the degree to which he allows us to know them. But let us not just ignore the biblical principles as they play out. 
Let us take these principles and instead of starting with a, well, government better fear me and then trying to work God's principles into it, let's start with the principle of submission and protection and then work our way through scenarios based on that principle. And then let things fall where they may. Next week, we'll wrap all of this in a bow. And we're going to do so, if you want to prepare yourself, we're going to do so in Daniel 3 with the account of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And how they responded to Nebuchadnezzar as king, the fiery furnace. And we'll walk through that and we'll help perhaps get a biblical, uh, uh, round out our biblical perspective of government and Christian and how we're to interact with one another. Let's close in prayer.